Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending November 19. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. On this week's show, you will hear Kate Lanebrook, former Breakfaster, dropping in uh, to tell us about her travels in Italy. She's got a new book out. It's called Ciao Bella, Six Take Italy, does not include... Uh, me, Seriously. even though I visited it in Italy, but sadly didn't I didn't make, make the cut. cut. <laughs> we also talked about feet. Oh my god, gross. Anyway, <laughs> I apologise in advance for feet combo. <laughs> Michael Harden chats to us about uh, caviar, and I tell a story about my dog peeing on freshly washed sheets, which was a little bit annoying. Uh, and Melbourneian of the Year Peggy O'Neill joins us, and no one is more excited than Smitty. We discuss the perils of hitchhiking and got some gallows humour from our Friday funny bugger, Michael Chamber Chamberlain. Triple R. Kate Langbrook is an entertainment and broadcasting legend who has dominated the airwaves for over two decades and appeared on programs including Thank God You Hear, the panel, and Have You Been Paying Attention? Katie's now an author with the publication of a new book, Ciao Bella, Six Take Italy. And to tell us about it, the columnist and iconic former breakfaster joins us now. Kate, welcome back to Triple R. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Too much? Oh, well, it's, it, was at once, it was once a lot and at once kind of read dismissively. So you can't put me in a first yeah. It's my sweet so spot. So you were bigging me up but also diminishing me with your tone. So I'm out I, at a perfect he, place. Kate, he was really worried about that intro and I feel like you've given him a lot to worry about now. I don't want to embarrass you, that's all. Well, I, I do think I, – I think – I think it was very generous and beautiful, as Triple R has always been to me. Mm. And, you know, it's dear to my heart. Um, But I do think dominating the airwaves (laughs) makes me sound a little bit, a little bit like, instead of the normal laughing girl trope in in commercial radio, it makes me sound like... um, Like a, the jackboots. <laughs> anyway, I'll take whatever you can Yeah, it's all um, yours. Um, look, you did it. You took a family to Italy. Uh, you did radio from Italy. You wrote a book about it. You survived an intense lockdown. Are you smug? Are you granting yourself that? Uh, how do you feel? Well, it was, Daniel, it was one of those things that in retrospect um, feels like more of an achievement because at the time, in the lead up to it, we were so mired in in just the logistics of it, which are enormous, that we were too busy chiseling away at those. And at one point, Peter, um, my husband, who Sarah came and saw us in Bologna, actually. We had a lovely drunken lunch where I won't... <laughs> A, a restaurant we couldn't go back to for quite some while. Oh, no. Drunk. Do you remember what you were calling out? No, don't stop it. I know oh, that. Yeah. I, what was it? I know that I don't feature in the. I was so disappointed I didn't feature in the book, and I was like, "What did we do that night that made me not feature in the book in any way?" Well, it was just an editing process. <laughs> it was a delightful day. It was one day out of two years. <laughs> anyway, well, but you were great company. Let's go. But there will be Italians who are haunted by you to this day. What'd you do? I don't. I can't remember. She all just I, had a great time. Oh, and all I know did. is that the Pete and Kate took us out for um, aperitif, aperitivo, aperitivo, which is like cocktail hour. Cocktail hour. It was delightful, and then took us out for dinner. And um, halfway during the dinner, Pete said to me, um, 
yeah, Kate never drinks as much as you think she does. And then I realised that I was, I'd had a lot more to drink than you. And I was like, Kate's just sitting there, very well behaved, and I wasn't, so I can't remember the rest of the evening. (laughs) (laughs) It involved you calling out a swear word that luckily the Italians don't know. But you called it out so loudly and repeatedly that even Italians who didn't know that swear word knew that it meant something. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, it was fabulous. Loose. They couldn't go back, Sarah. We had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Had a great time. Anyway, my point was that when we were trying to get ourselves to this great time, Mm. so trying to get six people to the other side of the world and blah, 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 and visas and tests and, oh, it was just so full on. Um, Peter, who was doing the bulk of it, my husband was doing the bulk of it, and I kept saying to him by way of encouragement, darling, people do this all the time. It's entirely possible people do this all the time. And at one point he, we were in the kitchen and he looked at me and he said, darling, can you just tell me one other person you know who's done this? <laughs> That's right. And I couldn't, but I thought that I could, and I'd been tricked into it, Daniel Burke, like, <laughs> like me writing books and bookshops being full of people. Oh, you're in Provence. <laughs> <laughs> People don't do it. And what I'm about not saying don't do it? Yeah, I totally advocate doing it. But the fact is that people just don't seem to do it, and probably for good reason. Yeah. And what, would it would it have been possible without Peter? Oh no, my darling! Mm. I'm just a woman with four children. <laughs> I'm gonna get them chilling to the other side of the world without a strong man. <laughs> and sometimes in front of me. <laughs> no, that was how our division of labour pretty well went. Yeah. <laughs> dream up. I would dream up um, scenarios for us. And then Peter would set about making them come true. Amazing. And in that way, we discovered, which is always interesting in a relationship, isn't it? How complementary we were to each other. Mm. Well, you're, you write how many meals that you cook. I can't believe the, the dedication and the commitment. The mathematics is extraordinary, especially in a lockdown where you can't go to a bloody restaurant. Mm. Like, and in our first lockdown in Italy, we had no delivery either. Oh, wow. And I, Daniel's referring to a part in the book where um, I do a bit of moaning in the book, even though it was such a joyful, brilliant experience. There is, because I am still me, there's still some complaining. Mm. And I stop counting after 1,200 meals. <laughs> Oh, my God. Holy. Yeah, because once the kids were home from school as well, one of the greatest things in Italy is that they get fed at school. They go to the Mensa. So one of the – a tiny little thing, but such a joy to anyone who's ever made school lunches was that I didn't have to make school lunches for two years. But then, of course, we went into lockdown and then I had to make everything, everything, everything for six people for four months. And you've been in a oh, I was just going to no. say you've been in a Melbourne lockdown now, and you've been yeah. in an Italian lockdown. How do Melburnians just talking about complaining? How do Melburnians deal with lockdowns compared to Italians? Like, what was the biggest difference? It's it was kind of interesting because in your lockdowns or our lockdowns here, mm. um, we have more freedom than we had in Italy, mm. but it feels like we have less. Isn't that strange? Yeah. So I think because Melbourne is and because we came 
after that brutal lockdown that that you guys did in 2020, where we could tell, keeping in touch with our friends, we were in Italy at that point, that our friends, something had broken in our friends in that in that lockdown that you guys did. The difference between talking to our friends in Sydney, for instance, or Brisbane and Melbourne was quite remarkable. Mm. And having come back and into rolling lockdowns here, I understand there's something of the psychology here that is just, it's very harsh. Is it's it because the harsh. Italians like are just more laissez-faire that they don't they don't or is it just the way that it was here I, I don't know I mean maybe it was because if if we had stayed in um Europe for that when by the time we left we were going we were in another lockdown and then they went into a terrible winter lockdown that started in December and went right through to March now that would have been a really hard one, but who knows? I mean, is there a good lockdown? Is no, there? true. I have yet to meet one. No, <laughs> uh, no, overall, I found it an incredible experience in Italy. What does your family make of the book? Because you're, I guess, the public face and spokesperson for the family. What do they agree with the way the two years has been represented? Ah, uh, well, that's a good question. I mean. The fact is I said to them when I decided that I would write a book, which I wanted to do for uh, to have as a, you know, a testimonial for my family. It's mm. a very personal book and it's a, very much about, um, a, a, well, it is about a large family and, and pretty well a happy family, which I know all these things are out of vogue, but that's <laughs> nonetheless yeah. who we are and someone's got to fly that freak flag <laughs> of, like, functionality. Anyway... Um, I said, I said to the kids when I was writing a book, if you don't like it, you can correct the record in your own books. Do <laughs> your own mommy dearest. But so far, the only one who's read it is my teenage daughter, who Sunday, who who you'd think would be our most dangerous, the most dangerous reader, but she was quite pleased with it. Excellent. What is the one thing that you've um, brought back from your time in Italy? Because you read this and you talk about falling in love with the Italian lifestyle and their their yes. lust for life and the way they just embrace every moment and every meal and every drink. Is there anything you've brought back with you or is it all just disappeared now you're back in uptight Australia? Oh, well... That's funny you say uptight because we think we're easygoing, oh, but we're not. We are um, not. You go to Italy and you're like, yeah. just going to let it all go. Yeah, it's funny. Sounds like you in restaurants. there's things they are uptight about, which is mainly things that uh, are reflected in beauty or lack thereof, and that's a very highly esteemed uh, cultural I don't know what you call it. It, it. it is in their lifeblood, the Italians. Their love of beauty is not shallow, put it mm, that way. Mm. Anyway, so you can upset them by wearing thongs. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel Burt. Yeah. Oh, Daniel, no. <laughs> it's not very Daniel. early. And you know what, Daniel? What? When you go to Italy and you wear thongs, like, off the beach, <laughs> like as footwear, like we do, yeah. they, the Italians give you a look that is so eloquent <laughs> and beautiful. Oh. The look is full of pity, oh. but not. But it's pity for you about why you would dream so little for yourself. <laughs> They're just They're my amazing. people. 
that was my Sarah. That was partly what I was like when we come back and we went into holidays uh, last Christmas with friends. We're down at the beach. I'm like, let's all dress up at aperitivo hour. You know, instead of rolling around slightly, you know, walk-eyed, let's all dress up like Italians do. We did it. We did it once. Everyone looked spectacular. And after that, we just reverted to the Australians that we are, which was like even tying your sarong so it didn't fall off <laughs> mid-barbecue seemed like too much trouble. But, but it's still in my heart, in my cuore. I, I, still, I still have learnt the lesson. I just don't live it. Have you made any undertakings to head off again or make a, you know, a, not an annual but... A pilgrimage in some way to, you know, keep the family alive, that Italian spirit? Um, I, I can't – well, A, I can't imagine travelling anywhere at the moment. I've had that beaten out of me. Yeah. Um, but I also can't imagine a future without, you know, being able to see the world again. You know, as Australians, we're – it's kind of a rite of passage for us. That's what you kind of start working towards from really young is your first trip away because we're very conscious of the fact that the world is not near us. So I can't imagine not getting to see the world again and I can't imagine not seeing Italy. Mm. Did you learn much of the language, uh, each of you in the family, or who did it best? Well, it took it took us a little while, but, yeah, by the, by the end of two years, we were pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and I say pretty good if someone was speaking directly to us and speaking slowly. But once they start, <laughs> they're incredibly quick and fluid and poetic speakers, um, that, that was difficult to decipher but I'm very good as Sarah can attest I'm excellent in a restaurant Mm -hmm. because self-interest is a great motivator (laughs) (laughs) and I'm pretty good I basically I think I speak the Italian of probably a (laughs) three-year-old which is uh, there's a lot of linking words missing but I can make my intent clear with a solid tantrum (laughs) (laughs) well look ciao bella six take italy is kate lane brooks new book it's it's a beautiful diary isn't it do you keep a diary no i don't how did you do it i wanted to keep write a book yeah I, i don't take i don't do anything that is not mandated through need. That's right. <laughs> was the radio show in effect a diary? Did you use that as to yes, remember? kind of, but I don't know what your you guys' experience of radio is, but for me it was always like fish and chip wrapping so that once up where I'd done it, I'd spent it, threw everything at it, put all the grease and salt on the paper, mm. but then basically it's rolled up and it's gone because then the next day is all fresh. Yeah, mm. that's right. So I didn't really retain anything but what I did realize now is our phones are like diaries because of the photos Mm. and also I had when I was thinking about writing the book and I didn't want to write one of those I didn't want to write one of those books mainly because I don't like them of you know my great grandmother's (laughs) mother was born in a blustery seaside town in Cornwall (laughs) You know those books? I, I mean, books. to be honest, by the sound, it sounds like you've got it in you. <laughs> so maybe reconsider. 
my next book, Sarah. <laughs> Anyway, so I just wanted to write stories that encapsulated for us the experience, good and bad, but overwhelmingly good, of what we had undertaken and the moments that you realise um, along the way you could have just brushed past them on the path, but they were actually glittering jewels. So pick them up, gave them a polish, and that's really what the book is. It's those moments and those stories Beautiful. that overall tell a two-year adventure, I guess. Yeah, well, welcome back. Thank you for bringing that spirit back to us because we need it desperately. Uh, ciao, Bella. Six Take Italy. It's out through Simon & Schuster. Kate Langbrook, thanks for being with us again. Okay, don't cut me off. Off air, I'm going to tell you what Sarah was yelling. Oh, oh yes! <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Last week I spoke about going to uh, the doctor and, and whenever I make appointments with the doctor I have to I, – I always bank on waiting an additional 30 minutes on top of my uh, booked appointment. It's just – and it always checks out. It was a little bit longer last time. Um, but I got a referral to a podiatrist and guess how long I had to wait for the podiatrist? An hour. No. An hour and a half. No. <laughs> three. <laughs> three? Three. Oh, three. Uh, I – on time. I literally oh, walked in the door yeah. and it was oh. – he, he was just waiting for me. <laughs> Do you know I've got a theory because I've seen podiatrists before always on time. Always on time? And I think there's something about feet oh. and timeliness. Yes. Oh, yeah. Someone is interested in feet. They just There's something about them. Like they'd have a watch. They wouldn't just have a phone. Well, why would you want to linger around <laughs> a foot? Have a watch. Like – how do things blow out the medical profession anyway? Well, it, well, it's, well, it's someone who wants to spend extra time with you. So I have a specialist say that I see. Yeah. And I know she'll always be going on an hour late. Yeah. It's very hard. I never turn up later either because I just think, what What, what if? Yeah, never, exactly. Yeah. Never. Yeah. But when I'm in with her, she'll spend as much time as she needs in my consultation with yeah. no consideration to the next person, which I appreciate as the patient. Because yeah. You, and you're often paying a lot of money mm. and, you know, so it's this weird cyclical thing and I get it because I wouldn't want her to rush me. Whereas I feel like podiatrists are very – I just feel like they have watches. And yeah. That's, and they're very – you just do your thing with the foot and you go, I mean, how much care does a foot need? Now I feel like, <laughs> well, I'm, no, I'm not, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't want to throw podiatrists under the bus, no. bus either. But uh, you go to a dentist and, you know, it's a myriad things that you could discover. Right. But it's like there are five toes. You know, there's an arch. Yeah. You know, what are we dealing with <laughs> Bit here? Bit of fungus. No, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm just, I, I have a lot of respect for them. But I just, I've just, every podiatrist I've ever met has been very efficient. Efficient. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So efficient. Um. You know what the common, the most common reason for people going to a podiatrist is? What? Running, um, running injury. Uh, Step oh, on a it, nail. It could be. Okay, sorry. Splinters. So <laughs> an ingrown toenail. So you can get that from running. Um, but that is, oh, like, yeah. The, do- the podiatrist had said it to me when I was there because that's what I had. Mm. In, and that's the first time I've been to a podiatrist. Um, but, yeah, no, I went in there and I was just reading an article on uh, that a podiatrist had written on just little tidbits and facts and, and tips to keep your feet in check or if you're going to see a podiatrist. Mm. Um, and one of the major things, because um, in- ingrown toenail is the most common, um, is a lot of the people that come in often try to fix it themselves yes. and then just make it so oh, much yeah, worse. Of course. Of course. Always. So, yeah. Always. Get out the pliers. Anything. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Um, you, you attack that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can fix this. I can absolutely fix this. For weeks on end, every night. 
Yeah. Yeah. Without boiling hot water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So I, I mean, I didn't go hard, but I did try to fix it. And then straight away I went to the GP and then just went to the, to see him. And he's like, did you try to, <gasps> did you try to? I said, no. Dusted. I mean, a, a little, li- he's like, that's okay. He goes, most people do. Um, but. I hadn't done too bad a job, so it was fine. Um, But this appointment, he was so lovely, so efficient, didn't feel rushed at all. I was honestly in out of there in under 12 minutes. I would say that shows a lack of respect that podiatrists get, the fact that people think that they can do it themselves. You know, how many people are wrapping string around a doorknob and yanking out a tooth these days? (laughs) Very true. Uh, so maybe a few during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the one of the things that I read that a podiatrist had said that if you're getting a pedicure to bring your own tools so that you don't get infections, and I get that, but I mean, who's going into it? Get a mani pedi with your own tools? How embarrassing! Yeah. I think it, has that happened. I mean, they would know, I suppose. They said that it can happen. I mean, oh, I don't want to jinx myself. Yeah, but I've had I don't know a dozen. Pedicures? Yeah. And I haven't had it happen. But, of course, the next one I get, which will be for What's the wedding, t- I'll get an infection. tool? Is a tool a, a grinder thing? The, cu- the, cu- the, the cutter? Yeah, yeah, the cutter, but also I think <laughs> the things pumice? that they... <laughs> hummus? Yeah, is that right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. It sounds sometimes like hummus. I, I, know, I know, I know. Yeah. I'm upset by this whole conversation. <laughs> I know. Some people don't like feet. Yeah, this could be... Um, you know my podiatrist really... called shoes foot coffins? Foot coffins? <laughs> Why? Because why do you think? Because they kill your feet. Because you're born. They were like, you're born with good feet. And then your shoes are just just like foot coffins carrying them to their death. (laughs) Carrying to their death. What what do you think? I mean, he didn't say carrying them to their death. I added that. But to be fair, (laughs) I I kind of got it. When they said it, the visual was just so disarming. But if we all started running marathons in bare feet. No, when they weren't advocating that, I just think they're like, by this point in your life, you've been walking around in coffins for so long. Because people, yeah, what are the top three worst shoes for feet, do you think? High heels. Heels, yep. Thongs. Yes. Two out of three here, Smithy. Clogs. What did you say? Oh, that wasn't on the list. I guess most common, the top three most common. High heels, thongs and gumboots. No. Uggs? No. Ballet flats. You know the ones that people oh, just yeah. wore them for years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So bad, just absolutely no support. Uh, and then fourth was barefoot. So. so flats are bad because so there's, there's no support. But we use uh, ballerinas and ballet people use dancers use them because no they're ballet silent? flats is a type of oh, is, I'm a, sorry. is a is a like a just a flat shoe for a lady. Okay. Yeah. I guess yeah, not specifically for ballet, ballet shoes. They just kind of yeah look good, but they they've co opted. You're not the expected to know. Okay, yeah. cool. thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they're the worst ones. Um, yeah, what do you, the when you look you... at your feet, do you think they're, what do you reckon of your own feet? Of mine? Feet? Yeah. You know, I actually, I think I have beautiful feet. Yeah. Not really? at the moment, but no. Would yeah. you put them on Tinder? No. <laughs> Would I put them on Tinder? Yeah. I wouldn't be embarrassed about it. Oh. Hmm. I'll take a photo of them in the sand. Yeah. Take one of those. Yeah. I, I, I don't you mind You would take feet. a photo in the sand and put it on Tinder. I wouldn't put it You're on Tinder. You're that confident. And... I mean, I'd put it on social media. I'm quite confident. Don't yeah. you take a photo and you see your legs stretched out mm. and pointing towards the the waves? Yeah, I always have to have them covered. <laughs> Do you? Your are you you're not, you're not yeah, comfortable with it? Not many people oh, are. Oh, it's not, it's not okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. How about you, Daniel? Uh, I've been accused, I suppose, of them looking like a hobbit's foot. But, <laughs> you know, it might be the tuft of hair on the... <laughs> I'm upsetting you. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm You've okay. covered them today, though. Yeah, oh, that's right. I'm usually wearing – well, sometimes I'm running later wearing thongs. 
but yeah, I think they're gross. I mean, I, I think I would like to see less um, stigma around foot fetishes. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, so what? You got a foot fetish? Fine, yeah. great. Yeah, there's weirder fetishes. There's we- yeah, totally. Just own it. And like, uh, they must be foot fetishists. Must be like, it's summer. Oh, oh yeah, it's on. I would it's, love it's it. On. I can't Fergie. wait. <laughs> Yeah, suck on that was ingrown toenail. Oh, Daniel. <laughs> I apologise to everyone. I'm so sorry. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Oral delicacy, Michael Harden is here for an edifying food interlude. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you all? <laughs> yeah, really, really terrific. Um, what are you bringing us? Well, I thought something that, you know, would be, you know, sort of near and sort of like at the, at the forefront of every Triple R listener's heart is uh, caviar. <laughs> yeah, like enough. So, um, but it was just sort of, I was thinking it's it's sort of um, speaking to a bit of a trend in Melbourne restaurants at the moment, sort of like with a, a you know, post lockdown or even during lockdown is that um, people tending to spend a little more money and also going for safe options. So mm-hmm. there's sort of been in the last sort of year or so, a lot of the new places that have been opening up have been um, sort of quite traditional sort of French bistros, that sort of stuff. And what I've noticed on a lot of these menus is that they're all doing caviar service. It's mm. sort of a new thing. So it's kind of, you know, and, and caviar is one of those traditional sort of like almost cliche um, expensive restaurant things. And um, so I thought, you know, sort of talk a, a little bit about how caviar got to where it was because originally, um, you know, when you're talking caviar, um, it is a very specific Thing. It's the fish row from um, sturgeon that are usually from, um, you know, from around Russia, the Volga River in particular. And once upon a time, you know, sort of earlier this century, it was kind of like it was a cheap and plentiful food that like people ate there. They were just, you know, it was just one of those things. Everybody had it. There was lots of sturgeon. These sturgeon, some of them are huge. They can grow up to five metres. And, um, and they were really plentiful around that time. And then, of course, People sort of started to make a bit of money from it and then they got overfished and then they started polluting the rivers and then they dammed the rivers and then all of a sudden caviar became this very rare thing and then it was sort of like, and because it became rare, then it got poached almost to the level of extinction to the point where it was actually during the 2000s, it was actually banned um, from import in most countries around the world in order to try and save the sturgeon population because it was so close to the brink. Hmm. So, you know, sort of like that. So, and it actually worked. The sort of like the, the stocks are still pretty precarious, but they've actually, um, you know, survived a little bit. But it also meant that it, that it was the rise of caviar farms and sturgeon farms throughout the world as well. So there's sort of like those have happened all over the place. Like there's sort of about, I think there's about 60 of them in Europe and they're in China and they're in South America and stuff. And it's actually led to, they're actually quite well-run farms, a lot of these ones, the ones that you know about, because because it's a prestige product. People are very, very interested in how it's farmed and, you know, the sort of water that the fish are living in and that sort of stuff. So um, it's kind of, for the fish at least, if you're going to be in a fish farm, you probably want to be in a caviar fish farm. Yeah, so So, there was a period there where if you were having caviar, there's chances it was illicit. Yeah, illicit and uh, from an endangered species that you were helping kill. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, so, but that's, you know, that's sort of part of the thrill, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of like, isn't it like, you know, white people shoot leopards? (laughs) Mm. So, 
So they've uh, and and now could you could you discern the difference between one caviar and another? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a difference, and it's like the thing is that um, there's sort of the three types of caviar that you're looking at. There's saruga, there's Osetra and beluga. Beluga is the kind of you know it's it's the high end one that you that you're looking at, and it's kind of it's from a bigger fish. The eggs are bigger. They're sort of like you know they're quite it's quite delicate. They're a really really beautiful colour. It's got this really sort of buttery colour to them, but it's extremely expensive. Mm. Um, the other ones are also as good, and they're the, and you sort of see tend to see in Australian restaurants you'll see a mix of. Um, a bit of imported stuff, usually from Europe or from Russia, and then we'll have some Australian fish roe um, as well, which is sort of, and there's some really, really good product in Australia in terms of, of fish roe. There's sort of like Yarra Valley salmon is probably the one that most people know. It's sort of like it's kind of sort of Yarra Valley. It's a bit outside, but it was a farm that was started in the 90s. It was originally, um, they, they put it in because they were going to sell the, the meat from the salmon and then the Tasmanian industry took off for better or worse and then and so suddenly they couldn't compete with that and then they realized that they had this side product and it was actually really really good and so they they're one of the first places in the world that actually milk the salmon because in a lot of places when when you farm caviar the fish will die um, so, you know, they'll, they'll either, you know, they're trying to do a bit more sustainably, but like originally it was like, you get the fish, you cut the fish open, you take out the, the, you know, the sacks of eggs and, um, and then sort of hand wash those through a sieve. But in, um, at the Arrow Valley place, they actually milk the salmon. So they put them to sleep, but, um, in their ponds, they get them in ponds when they're ready. It's like, it's, they only do it three weeks a year. Um, is when they're spawning with the eggs and they put them in the pond and then they put drops of clove oil into the pond which makes the fish sleepy and then they have about 10 people that milk the fish so they just basically sort of it's like a milking process where they pull the eggs from the fish and then they chuck them back into another fresh pond and the fish is like swimming around happily later so um, it's a it's a beautiful product and it also you know that the fish are being treated well did the fish did the fish know what have happened to them when they wake up? Um, I'm not sure. It's kind of, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, do I still have my kidney? I'm not sure what the, what the effect of clove oil on, on fish yeah. consciousness and is. But. How, do you, uh, how do you eat? Are there different ways to eat caviar? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, it's, it, and this is the other thing about caviar that's kind of like, it's sort of ridiculous, but it's also sort of fun, mm-hmm. in, you know, with eating because there are rituals around it. Like, you know, for example, it's sort of, it, you have to, you have to eat it with a particular sort of spoon. And it's hilarious that the spoons that you're eating are like polished bone or gold plated or, you know, all of this, because you can't use a stainless steel spoon or even a silver spoon because the um, caviar reacts to the metal and it takes you'll you'll get a metallic taste from the spoon so it's sort of like it's sort of said you can you can also use plastic but if somebody gave me a plastic spoon when i was spending you know 150 (laughs) dollars for 30 grams of fish eggs i think i'd slap them (laughs) (laughs) so you know kind of you want a bit of ritual around it and it's also the other thing when they serve it it's like it it look you know you think that it's it's always served on ice usually in a tin and it'll be on ice and you sort of think oh that's just for show but it's actually the best way to serve caviar needs to be chilled down a little bit so that the, the membranes become firm and it's sort of like it just um, gets the flavour going on. 
So, um, you know, it's kind of like it, it is the best way to do it. And then you can either, there's ways of like you can put it, some some places you'll put it on, they'll put it on your, your part, the like your fist. You make a fist and they put some on and you eat it there because it's just gives you a little bit of heat in the eggs just before you eat them to sort of get that flavour. And there are sort of traditional caviar condiments that, that you have with them. So it's things like chopped hard-boiled eggs, capers, um, lemon wedges, raw onion, um, sort of blinis. You can put them on like steamy little wax potatoes, that sort of stuff. They're good with creme fraiche. You could use sour cream at a pinch, but creme fraiche is sort of, you know, more exclusive. So if you're going to eat caviar, let's, let's commit. So, um, do, you know, there, there are those rituals. Do, do you think many people use caviar inappropriately? Because I feel like I've seen a lot of YouTube videos where people are like, I'm going to go and eat the most expensive uh, sushi or the most expensive burger or whatever. And sometimes all it is is people are just putting caviar on top of a, no, a normal food. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah, is that a common that thing? Sort of like, it is that kind of thing where it's like, you know, it's like those stupid drinks that have gold leaf floating around <laughs> in them and stuff like that. It's like, get over yourself. It's like, if it's there for a purpose, but if you're just doing it to sort of show off, then, you know, what's the point? And yeah. it's kind of, and it is, a you know, it's actually a really beautiful product and it can add beautiful things. Like, you know, you can get a decent, you know, tin of like local salmon row and like have little blinis and some creme fraiche and sort of a blob of those on top for a breakfast or something. Mm. And it's kind of, and it's delicious because, you know, and that the the membrane on them, it's like, it's like the idea of it is popping it. So it's, that's the other thing I meant to say before, when you're eating caviar, you get it on the spoon and then you want to turn it upside down um, when you put it in your mouth. So you've got your, the, the eggs on your tongue mm. and then you squish them against the roof of your mouth so they pop. And then you get those sort of like that kind of oceanic sort of salty sort of almost sweet sense, you know, taste and sensation as well. And it's a great, you know, it's sort of, it's a, it's like, you know, rich man's pop rocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with that explosion, would you, uh, would you savour it? Do you push it um, abruptly against the roof of your mouth? Do you? I would, I, I think do it, do it everything and sort of slowly and kind of like be aware, like, you know, because there are, there it's a, it's a nice sensation of having those smooth eggs in your mouth as well, I guess, unless you're a vegan and then you'd be revolted. But, yeah. uh, you know, but generally it's sort of like for somebody that, you know, that it's a texture thing first that that's really, um, that's really great. And I think it's sort of like, yeah, you don't like, you know, just slow it down, take a breath, with caviar and sort of pull pull your way through and it's sort of like yeah sam you're right it's like anybody putting you know caviar on a burger um needs to be banished from the kingdom <laughs> <laughs> uh michael harden the case for caviar it's back it's on yep yep go for it, go for it. <laughs> thanks mate triple Some sun come out over the weekend, so I thought it was a good time to do some uh, cleaning of the sheets. I love fresh sheets, like bed sheets, quilt cover, all of that kind of stuff, um, and actually hang it out on the balcony and, and get it nice and crisp. Because I think there's a difference between your sheets drying naturally uh, with some sun and then also in a dryer. Mm. Like it's just not as crisp if it's in a dryer. Although, I, I mean, we don't actually own a dryer. I, I'd go to the laundromat. I feel like a dryer is a luxury item. Do you guys own dryers? Well, no, I do not. And I've just found out that caviar is, is an essential <laughs> item. So now <laughs> yeah. I need to get a caviar and a dryer. It seems. <laughs> I have a dryer, but I'm scared of it. Do I don't, you? Oh, yeah. You don't want to show, You know, I've shrunk 
enough oh, things. Well, that's the thing as well. Yeah. <laughs> Where, yeah, and I there's this there's the pompous satisfaction I get of drying things naturally. Oh, mm. <laughs> I mean, no one else Mel- gets that in Melbourne. It's a difficult thing to do. So yes, yeah, yeah, it can be. You know, um, I used to live with one of my best mates, and she was away for half of the year traveling and working. Um, and she and emailed us once. I was living with my partner as well, just saying, "Oh, do you guys?" Because it was her actual apartment, and we were kind of renting off her. Uh, she goes, you guys, we don't have a dryer, do we? We're like, no, we don't. She's like, oh, do you, do you want a dryer? Shall I get us a dryer? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and she got us a dryer. And, like, she'd never use it because she chases the summer around working. So she's never here in the winter. Um, but we got a dryer. And I tell you, it was so convenient. Um, but with clothes, I would definitely I, – I wouldn't put too many clothes in there because they do shrink. But for um, – during the winter when you're doing sheets and stuff was good. But anyway, this, this particular day, it, it was sunny, so we uh, hung out all our sheets and fresh quilt and everything and then put them on the bed. And I tell you, I was really excited to jump into bed with some crunchy, fresh sheets. And just before we were about to get into bed, um, I was brushing my teeth, Abby was brushing her teeth, we were both busy. Uh, At the we... same time. Brushing our teeth? Yeah. Just going, just about to go to bed? You go to bed at the same time? Oh, we were putting Winnie to bed. So, yeah, oh. not always, but <laughs> does that make you sick? A bit. That's sweet. That's it's so too nice. romantic. Oh, is it lame? It's too it's romantic. A... <laughs> nah, Bobby owned that. That's so nice. <laughs> well, we've got a baby now. We've got the, bloody, we've got the dog. We have yeah. to put the dog to bed. Um, so we've got our routine. Yes. So we were brushing our teeth. <laughs> um, and apparently we weren't giving Winnie enough attention. Winnie, never has she done this before, but she she jumped on the bed mm. and she peed on the bed, on the fresh oh, no. quilt cover. <laughs> and I, t- I haven't screamed that loud in, the, in a very long time. And Winnie, oh. Winnie jumped, like when I screamed, that she sprayed because <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, she was terrified. Um, and then I just grabbed her. And, and so we had to go. Like we had – and I think with bed sheets, like I've got my top two so I can kind of rotate them a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I've got backup sheets mm-hmm. yeah. that I don't – I use them for mm. visitors. If, if people are staying <laughs> over, you can have some of the backup ones, which mm. are fine, mm. but they're not my top two. Yeah. Um, so we had to get some of the terrible ones. So do you think it's, she sensed that you had just put these fresh sheets on and that you were really excited about it? Like, what's going on in Winnie's I dog know. brain? <laughs> well, I, I feel like she just – like, we were ignoring her for 30 seconds of the entire mm. day and she was like, me, me, me. But you're right, because I was so excited about these sheets and maybe, yeah, she was just shoving it in what my face. Blow. What a blow. What a blow. I put on new sheets and uh, then I had, I got to – I had an adverse reaction – well, adverse – the Moderna vaccine, sweating. I have never, I was like shivering and like pissing sweat out of every pore. Oh, no. And like these beautiful crunchy sheets. It's like I'd soaked them in a trough. It was just putrid. So, yeah, I feel you 100%. Yeah. Also, what's so good about your sheets? I mean, I know we bang on about Egyptian cotton. I gather it's, there's something to that. Yeah, we've got linen sheets actually, So, and I love the feel of those. Mm. I think the other ones are cotton that we have. Um, the, the second tier ones for me, anyway. That's personally what I prefer. Yeah. What do you have? Well, I mean, uh, giving as a gift, uh, uh, silk is it silk satin pillowcases. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. that would does that make you sweaty? No, uh, and it's apparently it's good for your face or whatever. Anyway, it's just a 
I'm like you, Mr. Goop over here. <laughs> well, can I ask you, Mr. Goop? Because I feel like as I'm approaching 30, for some reason I seem to be getting more Instagram ads that are like, um, yeah, lux- luxury sheets and yeah, and sort of. It's really weird. But do you feel like it is something that you spend more time thinking about as you get older? I definitely. I think there's a sign of when you know you're getting older. When the sun comes out, and you're like, oh, that's, this is a good day for laundry. <laughs> yeah, like, right. This is a good day to hang out the clothes. Yeah, yeah. And I've been doing that for about 10 years now. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think dread- it's starting for you. <laughs> I, uh, do you do you get help doing the bed? Like, do you are you in charge or what's the deal? Um, I wouldn't say I'm in charge, no. But and I think as I've gotten a little bit older, I have valued fresh sheets more. I, you know, I don't really want to admit this too much on there, but <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you know, as a, I know it's embarrassing. There is a you know maybe a cliche. Uh, yeah, in terms of being a, a, a cis man in your 20s <laughs> where people expect you not to change your sheets very often and perhaps yeah. that was me earlier in my 20s but I feel like, yeah, I'm certainly valuing some fresh sheets yeah. these days. Um, got it. Do you wear pyjamas, Sam? I, no, I don't actually. We're getting actually. really yeah, personal what, here. Yeah, I love it. Welcome to the show. Why Thanks am for I filling being, in. Why am I being grilled on my personal sleeping <laughs> So you're naked under the I'm not naked, sheets. No. I wear boxer shorts. Boxer shorts. Yeah. yeah. Like old school satin ones or like... I actually don't know what the material is. I mean, you know they were satin silk, I don't, though. I don't think they're satin. Yeah. I don't think they're satin. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and do you... What about when it get, turns summer? Do you change the quilt? Uh, yeah. Maybe a top sheet sort of vibe. Mm, yeah. That's what we're talking about. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you're in... So you're, you're conscious of it. You Do you have a ceiling fan? No ceiling fan. Okay. Yep. Do you? I do have a ceiling fan. Oh, yeah. I think you, they're brilliant, aren't they? We don't, but I, I think you've got to have them. One hundred percent. And and uh, with a fitted sheet, um, do you need help doing that? I actually require help. Is that <laughs> dumb? Am I weak? It's difficult. I, yeah, it, it is. It can difficult. be difficult, but mm. I mean, what? How hard is it to put mm, on the fitted sheet? Not that hard. Be well. No, it is hard. <laughs> I was saying, like, what if it, they said, like, BL, like, bottom left on one corner? Oh, yeah, that would be helpful, actually, yeah. Come on! Yeah. <laughs> Sew <So> that in! <laughs> I think we're revealing too much about ourselves. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Peggy O'Neill is president of Richmond Football Club, incoming chancellor of RMIT University, serves as a board member for Women's Housing Limited, Australia Dementia Network Limited and Fulbright Australia, and was this year named 2021 Melbourne of the Year. And to tell us about it, the financial services law specialist and advocate for women's sport leaders and gender equality joins us now. Peggy, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thank you. Our pleasure. If, please, well, congratulations and forgive the enthusiasm of my colleague Sarah here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we encourage enthusiasm, especially early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, what does it mean to, to win this or to be crowned Melbourne of the Year? I understand it goes back to 2005. Uh, that's right. I, uh, what does it mean? It's, um, uh, well, I can tell you I was very surprised when I got the call from the Lord Mayor. Uh, I thought, oh, you mean me? Um, <laughs> because you, I had no idea that this was going on behind the scenes. It's not as if, 
you know, you're um, nominated or, uh, or I don't know what the process is, but there's a selection panel. And um, then there are eight categories celebrating people who have done wonderful things around Melbourne who also receive awards on the day. And then there's the Melbourne of the Year, which was um, me this year. So it's, um, it's, you know, identifying someone, they say, who's contributed to our community. And, and uh, I certainly love Melbourne and, and hope that I've done my part in the years that I've been here. Mm. But um, a lot more to do. What is it about Melbourne that makes Melbourne Melbourne, you think, as our spokesperson this year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think we remember the the vibrant, exciting Melbourne of 2019, and we all want to get back to something that looks like that. Um, I, I don't know that you can identify one thing. I mean, I like the MCG and I like the NGV. Maybe it's the initials <laughs> that we use. Um, but, uh, you know, the arts and the sport and the food and live performances and creativity and, um, and Melbourne, you know, for its size is a, is a wonderful city to feel that you can walk around in and, and do things uh, on your own. And there's a lot of free things to go to as well. So I think uh, right now we all need to get back in and, and return Melbourne to that place where there's a lot of people on the streets doing a lot of interesting things. Um, obviously, a big part of returning Melbourne uh, to the, the way that it was would be being able to go to football at the G again. I've heard you speak before about your um, your kind of like game day routine when the Tigers would play at the G. How has that transformed over the last two years? Because we've been all stuck at home watching the footy on TV. I'm kind of interested in uh, what you did on game day after it was all removed from us. Well, I walked to the couch and I sat down and turned on television. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to say there's some days where I, because I live in Richmond and, and the MCG isn't that far away, that I, I would walk down and pretend I was going to a game and I couldn't get in, and then I would walk home and turn on the television. <laughs> so uh, I, the routine wasn't it wasn't the same, and that was for everybody in Victoria uh, who probably were starved of that um, live sport experience, especially in 2020, where I didn't see a game, including the grand final. Um, so it was, uh, my routine changed a bit. Um, and I must say that there were times when it was, you know, pouring rain outside in the middle of the winter and being on the couch in pajamas was not a bad alternative. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in June of 2019, you're appointed to the Australian Institute of Sport Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement Advisory Committee. What is? Uh, what, can you speak to us about the growth in appreciation and understanding around athlete wellbeing and why that's important? Well, I think that a number of um, you know very uh, high-profile people have been. Uh, brave enough to speak about the struggles that they've undergone, and um, the that committee that you're mentioning is chaired by Ian Thorpe, and he's been one of those who's uh, talked about the need for support and for uh, recognizing that you know young adult athletes are no different than young adults anywhere. If anything, there's more pressure on them. They need more coping skills. They need more support. They need to ask for help. And I think sport is a wonderful um, platform to raise these issues so that other people feel free to put up their hand and say, I need help too. If someone like Ian Thorpe says, I need help, 
then you think, well, that gives me permission because look at what he's accomplished along the way. Mm. I think now there's more um, structure around uh, just day-to-day support for athletes. And it's not just physical high performance, but mental high performance now. And part of that mental high performance is being sure that um, people understand um, what's what's going on with them uh, mentally and instead of talking about you know mental illness we talk about mental health now that you don't wait until there needs to be an intervention um, because someone has become so unwell that you try to help them along the way to recognize the signs and to like with you know with a physical injury to get back to your best as soon as you can but all that requires uh, help and support and the AIS has gone into it in a big way and make quite you know, great strides in the last couple of years. And I think the Tokyo Olympics, a number of the athletes there talked about the support that they had received. Did you kind of notice how hard it was, say, um, for the players that you saw and spoke to over the last couple of years when it comes to mental health? Because I felt like with the footy, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, the players are playing, they're earning a lot of money, they should suck it up, they should fly around the country. Bad luck because so many people were having it hard and not able to work. What kind of did you witness up close with players dealing with mental health over the last couple of years? Well, I think you're right. There was this division between, um, you know, uh, we they're lucky to be working and at the same time we really want them to play. Yeah. And people saying, well, I wish my industry and of course everybody would like to every job to have continued but that just wasn't possible uh, but there were so many uh, restrictions necessarily so to keep the season going for example in 2020 and then in, in 2021 some of the things that uh, fortunately weren't repeated were people being in hubs for a long period of time um, players I think felt like they didn't have and I'm I'm just Speaking, I'm not a player, obviously, but this is what I observed, that there was almost um, uh, an unwillingness to express how they actually felt because they would be regarded as ungrateful. Mm. And uh, yet, if it were a normal year, uh, they would have been able to get more support for the various things. There was a great amount of support around people in hubs. I don't mean to minimize that, but we all think, how would we feel if if we were told for 110 days you're going to be locked up with your workmates <laughs> and you aren't going to go home. Uh, and I think we all struggled through uh, various aspects of the pandemic and to say just because you're playing sport you should be removed from all of that, you're, you're, you're above that, you ought to be just happy with your lot, uh, was a bit simplistic. Uh, people had all the complicated things going on in their life, which is through a pandemic as well, and being away from home and leaving behind, for example, partners, businesses, um, businesses that relied on them. So, um, so I think we were a bit angry with their situation sometimes, and so we took it out on those that we saw who, you know, presumably were continuing with what looked like a normal life. Peggy, you've been president of Richmond now since 2013, and now we see the likes of Kate Roffey, president of Melbourne, and Kylie Watson-Wheeler, uh, president of the Western Bulldogs. How happy does it make you to see more women leading AFL clubs alongside yourself? I was so thrilled <laughs> that when they became presidents, I said, in six months, we tripled our number. And they're... And they're <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it took a while, but uh, I have one more season left, and then I'm I'm uh, finished with as president. And and I really wanted other women to be in there as presidents. And you know, there's still more work to do as you know, CEOs and executives and coaches and all of that. But uh, I didn't want what little progress had been made to be lost. And and Kylie and Kate have been on their boards for quite a while, and it, it probably would have just happened naturally. But um, uh, but I was thrilled that when I saw who the grand finalists were, and, and Richmond wasn't there, put that to one side, um, I was just glad it would be two women leading um, leading the teams. And who would have thought that 10 years ago, that we would see something like that? So uh, so I was really pleased, didn't care for their teams, but I really care for them. <laughs> Peggy, we don't want you to leave as president, so I'm just putting it out there. I know that maybe I don't have a say in it, ultimately. Um, but what are you going to, what's this year, next year, going to look like for you as you kind of take that I guess like you know that this is your last year well I hope I get to go to lots of football games this year <laughs> which would be which would be something novel um and uh and the you know, the the big job is to um get things back on on track financially and to try to have what looks like a normal rhythm to the season um I think we um have talked a bit about it and we're about to go out and talk to all of our fans on the redevelopment of Punt Road and what that looks like. There's a huge project that's taking a tremendous amount of time and effort um, by Brendan and his executive team. And um, other than that, I just want to watch some football and and, um, the board will pick my successor and it will come from the current board and we have some great people and and I hope um, somebody wants this job. (laughs) It's surprising. Not everybody wants to do this, even though they're uh, great fans and they love the club. So um, so all of those things, I just hope it feels like a normal year and uh, a normal year in which we win another premiership. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah, God, yeah. Um, look, was it harder for you being president in 2016 when people were coming for you or over the last two years during COVID? Oh, I think the last couple of years were um, the hardest. Um, and it didn't, you know, other than being a fan and missing games, um, the hardest part was having to sort of resize the club. And uh, while Brendan and, and his team had to do the day-to-day really tough work on that, all of us were sad that people, through no fault of their own, lost their jobs. Uh, and also the uncertainty and the inability to plan very far into the future because things were changing so quickly. But on the other hand, it also told us that we don't need to be as rigid about things as we'd been in the past, that we're much more flexible than we thought. Um, So when I think about 2016 is uh, that we were just going to ride that out and see what happened. You know, people can run for the board uh, every year, there's an election, and so I thought if people want to run and, and get elected, then that's fine. But there was no way that we were going to step aside. So once that on a, on principle had been made, that that sort of approach, uh, we just got on with our job and, and trying to get things done in 2016 that we already had planned, and including recruiting a number of new players for 2017 who really formed the core of our premiership side in 2017. So, uh, so I think that that, that COVID and the pandemic in the last two years have uh, really tested us um, financially, and we were in a good spot because we had won a couple of premierships. Without that, I wondered what would 
what we would have looked like. So, um, so I think that from the people perspective and the financial perspective, the last two years were uh, were the hardest. And um, we can cross fingers and hope we're to the other side. Oh, yeah. You were saying you're excited to get back to the footy. What's Peggy O'Neill, the footy fan, like? Is there anything about you that would surprise us? Like, is there a thing that you call out that you'd be embarrassed for people to know or like a weird little thing that you do before each game that might surprise other fans? Uh, well, I know when I'm in the stands, I figure that um, the camera is going to be looking for you. <laughs> so, so I might I might look really calm. But when I'm in my lounge room watching it, I talk to the TV all the time. <laughs> and I think I think that they can hear me. I'm sure they can hear me. Uh, so I'm no different from that. Um, I I've had a ritual that I eat peanut M&Ms at the game. That's my good luck charm. Uh, however, last year I think that let me down. But maybe it's because I wasn't <laughs> at the game. I was in my lounge room. But I think, well, if we lose, I had some peanut M&Ms along the way. <laughs> uh, just finally, in addition to advocating for women in leadership roles, the uh, Melbourneian of the Year has uh, recognised your help in... Uh, helping disadvantaged and vulnerable women gain access to safe housing. Can you tell us about uh, some wins that you've had or things on the horizon that we can be proud of? Um, Yes, I've been on the the Board of Women's Housing, which is a housing association um, whose office is located in Cremorne, just near where I am in Richmond. And um, I was asked to come on the board as they were restructuring the board to get ready to take on some large um, construction projects. And I said, oh, well, I'll, you know, give it a year or so. And seven years later, I just, I'm still there um, because the work that they do is is so important. And uh, we were successful in getting grants under Minister Wynn's um, big build. And a lot of that is into um, community and social housing. We're focusing quite a bit out in Western Victoria, where there's a need in regional areas for um, new houses and units. And um, so we're working our way through that, which is a huge Huge undertaking for the next three years, and um, just you know, we're, it's a small organization, so we can't just keep looking for new projects until we get some way into the projects we already have. But um, but to see someone move into a new place that's safe and uh, and with their children, and just to know there's some stability in life is really rewarding. And I just can't speak highly enough of the great work that um, that the team at Women's Housing does. Well. Oh, I just, I'm so sorry. We do have to wrap up, but just really quickly, Peggy, I'm yeah. just wondering how Dusty's feeling about being captain next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think he keeps it pretty pretty close uh, as to his. <laughs> uh, I, I, you'll be the first to know. Well, Peggy O'Neill, congratulations again on the accolade. Uh, go Tigers, and sorry about Sarah. I'm um, go Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Triple R. A couple of weeks ago, I had a gig. I've spoken about it um, in Castle, Maine, and I was driving there with my with my partner, and um, and we noticed as, along one of the the long, I guess, quiet roads, uh, there was a man that was hitchhiking, uh, and it just I, I cannot remember the last time I saw someone hitchhiking, mm. and it just made me think this. I mean, this is the start of a horror movie. That's what <laughs> happens when you hitchhike in Australia. I mean, I don't think I would 
Well, I wouldn't. I, w- I wouldn't do it, and I, and I think that has a lot you to do with... You wouldn't hitchhike or you wouldn't pick one up? Both, I right. think. I'd be too... Yeah, I think I'm too scared um, either way mm. to, to either, you know, yeah, hitchhike or, or pick someone up. Um, although, like, if, if you flip it, like, when I've travelled hitchhiking, I mean, you're saving money. Mm. Like, I've done it multiple times in, in the Pacific, so in uh, Samoa, Fiji, Kiribati, everyone is going to town or going back from town and generally it's just one road or everyone's going the same way. But um, lots of people drive trucks or utes and it's just customary that if someone wants a ride, you pick them up. And I have been on both sides where I've jumped on many utes. Um, also, like because I had a ute, you wouldn't have to open the inside. People would just jump on the back. And then whenever they were ready to get off, they'd just tap the roof and then you just stop and they wow. get off. And, <laughs> and that's just what you would do uh, in the Pacific. So, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, I just think that it's uh, less scary to do it in another country. Although if you're in another country, I guess less people are going to know that you're missing as well. Mm. But uh, here I am getting in, uh, getting in rides. But have, you, have either of you found that when you're travelling, I, I didn't see it as hitchhiking when I was travelling. It was just... Travel. Yeah, right. <laughs> that uh, everyone does. I do, it has been a while since. I'd imagine there'd be a generation of people maybe seeing someone with their thumb up going, are they giving a thumb up to the traffic? <laughs> oh, like, completely. What's the, are they happy with the, with the flow here? Yeah, yeah, what's the, right. What do they want? Thanks for the review. civilian. <laughs> 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 uh, but, yeah, I think my, my parents would always argue when there was someone who wanted a ride, we had a combi van. Oh, did you? Yeah. So, oh, cool. so dad would be it's like, cool. "Let's do it. Let's do it. Can we do it? Can we pick them up?" And mum would be like, "No, no, no. We'll get massacred." And and you know, it's so it's really rough. Christos Chalkas in his book uh, mentioned that it based a character on someone who he caught a ride with, you know, thirty, forty years ago or something mm. in was Tasmania. Christos was the hitchhiker. Yeah, the hitchhiker. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I do. There was also he told an anecdote about. Just rolling out of the car, I think, basically at a set of lights. Nothing really was going bad. It was just an instinct that it wasn't right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, keeps life exciting. I think it, it's the fact that we don't do it is it feels like a sign that we're all uptight and scared. Possibly, mm. but I also feel like, well, as someone who remembers when Wolf Creek came out, and yeah, that, as like a young person when that came out, I just feel like there's clearly like a time before Wolf Creek and a time afterwards. Like I feel like I just yes. – that's so embedded in my consciousness that I just am not interested at all yeah. in yeah. engaging with it here or overseas, I think, kind of just because of that movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely let my guard down when I'm overseas. When I was living in Fiji, there was – you would um, get off at the airport and then travel to the capital and it was four hours on the bus that it would take. Or you could get these mini buses, which were so dangerous because they just, I don't know if they had their licence, but they were just speeding, but you'd do it in two hours. And when I'd lived there for a couple of months, you're just like, oh, let's just go and find a mini bus. Because the big buses just stopped all the time. It was really slow, windy roads. Uh, and when we first came in country, our manager in country was like, whatever you do, please don't get on the minibuses. Okay? They're very dangerous. They just drive super fast. There's, you, they're not registered. But if you get on the buses, it's like they're legal buses. Um, but I went on the minibus so many times because, like, at the end of a flight, and the flights get in at, like, midnight. It's like, I just want to get home. Mm-hmm. So we would get on the minibus all the time. And there was one time that a friend of mine, we both um, – two women and we got on this minibus and it was full of men and the driver was driving insane and he was doing stops that were off 
the main road until he did this this one stop where he went so far down a dirt road and I remember just grabbing her hand and we were just like, this is it, we're going to die. And of course, he came back, it just was... It just felt very bad. We didn't jump out. We couldn't. We were squeezed in. What do you think in. his story was? Well, he was picking up marijuana. Oh. He, he's, he stopped and yeah. he went into this house. And so we were sitting in the van that had stopped and he was stopped for about 20 minutes. And then he came out with this big bag, <laughs> put it in the bus. And then it just stunk out the whole bus and we we're just like... A drug running bus driver. Yes. Wow. Perfect. And then we, when we... <laughs> When we no got... witnesses. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's a bold move, actually. Oh, very bold. Oh, I remember we got off uh, in Suba, the capital, and we were just like, we were terrified. We were just so grateful that we got home. We were just like, we are never doing that again. But it's amazing how much you forget. I reckon mm. a few weeks later, we mm. got off at midnight or whatever, and we're just like, oh, let's just get on the minibus again. Mm. Do you Silly. think? It, I, does it matter how much you're carrying? Like, do you think if you see a hitchhiker carrying nothing, that affects you differently than a hitchhiker who's, like, laden with bags like a donkey? That's a good question. I feel yes. like it does seem a bit more suspicious if they have no bags. Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mind you, with the bags, it's like, what happened with your last ride? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> it's a good point. Mm. I don't know. For me, it's just all bad. I, yeah. I, yeah, red flags are waving for me. Never getting on any... I don't think anyway, so. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's the COVID thing too. Like, I feel just oh, super COVID weird. Thing. Like, you know, do people right. wear masks now? Like, do hitchhikers have to check in using your QR code? Like, what's <laughs> yeah. going on? Check it in. <laughs> I looked over to a car recently, and the, the driver and the passenger were both wearing masks. I was like, huh? Yeah. Uh, and then I realised that I think they were learning. They're a learner driver. Oh. Oh. I was like, I imagine doing learner driving oh. in a mask. Like, oh. it's hard enough. Yeah, learning totally. gears. Totally. Uh, and then, you know, your nervous cough and then suddenly yeah, you get yeah. kicked out and then you're hitchhiking <laughs> and we're off. Triple R. Our Friday funny buggers here and we welcome back to Breakcasters, Michael Chambo Chamberlain. Morning, Michael. Hello, Sarah and Bobby, and no one else. <laughs> fair, fair. Thanks, Jane, <laughs> Last time I was here, I think I started a petition to get Dan off the show. So, mm. People Power has not spoken. Which is no, it hasn't. Uh, I actually heard you yeah, making fun of me. I was in, I was in hospital. I had, a, I had a heart condition. Okay. Oh, really? Oh, dude, you okay? No, I am fine. No, I was, it's fine. It's fine. It wasn't, it. it wasn't a heart condition. It was a heart scare. Yeah, because you're a picture of health. I should have come, because well, I've actually just come from about two weeks in Melbourne. So yeah. um, I could have come down and given you, I don't know, massage your calves or something. Yeah. Yeah, you don't call. No, no, that's fine. It's fine. It's honestly, it's fine. Um, uh, You know, I notice when I'm in Sydney, I let you know I'm in town, but that's, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went down for my um, parents. um, They had their 50th wedding anniversary. Um, And I think mum was saying that uh, if she killed him at 20 years, she'd be out by now. (laughs) 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 You kind of think, oh, yeah, she would be. But it was cool. I, I mean, I hadn't been in Melbourne since April because um, uh, of the, um, uh, the 5G virus. And, um, <laughs> it was cool. I went down. Yeah, I just loved the coffee, the shopping, the laneway bars. And 
good to do Melbourne things. Like I got stabbed at Broadmeadow Station. Um, I watched Eddie McGuire do an apology. Uh, spent a hundred grand on um, a beach box. And I don't know if you saw me on the news, but I um, it was pretty cool. I, I took some gallows. I love I love the gallo stuff. It's so amazing. It's my favourite thing. Do you, do you guys love it? I love it. It's amazing. Like obviously the famous one, the interaction when the tourists, <laughs> the peaceful tourists went to the capital. But um, just the idea that like you're thinking about what to take to a protest. Like you're trying to work out a sign, and you go, Nah, nah, nah. I need to take gallows. Get nooses. So you, I imagine you go to Bunnings, yeah, and you got to talk to one of the people, and they're like, Oh, what, are you, what home project are you looking at? <laughs> Look, I want to take, take uh, a thing you used to hang people to a street protest. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. The nooses are in aisle five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, gallows in aisle seven. <laughs> oh, they're my favourite thing. Oh. Uh, you guys are opening up too, aren't you thrilled? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Are there like one particular thing that you kind of really want to do first off? Um, yeah. Haircuts and all that kind of stuff, but we have had that for a bit. Yeah. Like, are you like like dancers? You want to hit the dance floor? I, I want to get yeah. I want to get um like up close and personal with people on a dance floor at Revs at three a.m. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. It's just having lemonade then, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I love the um little things in the paper and stuff, and it's like you know these theatre groups or whatever you know want to open up and get people in and stuff, but they never pick like these good ones. It's always like. We here at the uh, Bingo Bango Improv Group can't wait to get back on the stage. <laughs> I don't think you guys should be on the stage in the first place. <laughs> but I loved it. I, my favourite thing about COVID was um, um, was the uh, just how many idiots there are. Like they kind of like were just all hiding in plain sight, mm. like the like the like the aliens from Men in Black. Like, they were, they were just, like, there. Like, they were like a basketball player on the edge of the court. Going, Come on, coach, put me in the game. I get my news from Facebook. Put me in the game. They were amazing. And I'll put it this way. In China, in 1989, at Tiananmen Square, a man protesting for his freedom stood in front of a row of tanks, daring them to run him over, okay? And in 2021, in Australia, a man protesting his freedom punched a police horse in the face. <laughs> But I love all these idiots because they're usually pretty harmless, aren't they? These idiots, like they, they say things like "winner, winner, chicken dinner." Okay? Like they, they call their wife the missus. They they call their male friends the boys. They get asked to the pub. They say, "Better check with the chief. Better check with headquarters. Better check with the Gestapo." Because they're idiots, right? Like they walk three abreast on the footpath. They bring gallows to a protest. They're over thirty and they're still skateboards. Okay? They're pretty harmless. They, they build podcast studios in their own home. They're, they're idiots. They're not like us. <laughs> I reckon we should build a statue, though. Okay, I reckon we should build a statue mm. for these idiots. And when I do this bit on stage and stand-up, um, I replace the word idiots with another word. Okay, yeah. <laughs> You'll lose your licence. <laughs> I reckon we build a statue, though, right? Okay, I picture a marble column. On top of it, a gender-neutral statue because the uh, idiot gene doesn't discriminate. <laughs> Uh, it's made of tinfoil, the official metal of the idiot. Uh, it's wearing an anti-5G T-shirt and a G-string as a mask, and it knows what it's doing. 
in its left hand, it has a Pete Evans cookbook. And in its right hand, it has another Pete Evans cookbook. And if you push a button, it goes, I'm not a doctor. You're, uh, are you are you coming back? Will you be doing any gigs? What if? I will be coming back at Christmas because um, I've got to uh, do a, a show with the Bingo Bango in <laughs> 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 uh, But it's funny, man. Have you been to the airport? I've, I've gone to the airport a couple of times the last couple of weeks. It's so interesting, like how how quiet it is. Like I went past the long term car parking at Melbourne Airport. Mm. I think it goes up to like H, and there were like no cars until like B. I've never seen anything. More empty. Actually, I'll tell you what I did. This is actually what I love. When I came to Melbourne, um, my sister wanted me to get a hire car because she lives in that world. And, <laughs> and so I did. And I said to the dude, I was like, okay, I, I was like, okay, can my name be Hulk Hogan? And I was like, they're not going to do it. And then sure enough, I show up at the airport and it's got a little iPad with the name Hulk Hogan on it. And Beautiful. he said, dude, to walking past him for like half an hour going, oh my God, is he really here? Is he really here? <laughs> But I was like, oh, I've never done that before. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to do that all the time now. Just pick up funny names. Um, but yeah, no, so I, had, I met a mate at the airport the other day who's going back to London for the first time in a year and a half since we've been stranded here for that whole time. And um, he said he's flying to Hong Kong and he was told there were going to be 12 people on the plane. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine when they give you up rates? Like, do they put you in first or something? Surely. Surely they can do that way. Like eleven people get upgrades and you're stuck in economy. Oh, yeah, yeah, they've run out of room. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, but I'd be fighting for that. I'd be fighting for that, mate. Um, but yeah, but I tell you about um, I tell you one more thing. I um, I've been thinking about my mortality. Oh no. Um, and so okay, this has happened. This happened about a week ago. So I, I don't think I've had a bruised ear. I don't think you can see it anymore. But um, I had a fall, okay? Now I'm at a certain age, man mm. of a certain age. I won't tell you how old I am, but um, I recently downloaded TikTok just to see what it was, <laughs> and we've immediately placed on a, a register. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I, uh, I was watching a YouTube clip on my laptop, right? And I was trying to put on um, pyjama pants with my other hand at the same time, so I was kind of holding a laptop. Um, and then I began to kind of trip over the pyjama pants, and I, instead of protecting my brain, I tried to protect my 2012 MacBook, which has a value of negative $2,012. <laughs> because I live alone. So, so let me think about this. Like, and I smashed my head on the side of this like, little wardrobe I have. Oh. And, um, and I, I fell on the ground and I, just, I was in so much agony. And then I, just, I was just like, that's it. It was like about 10 p.m. I'm like, I'm, just, I'm sleeping on the floor. <laughs> so I just fell asleep on the ground with, with my pyjama pants kind of around my knees. And I'm, I won't get too graphic, but there was nothing underneath that. <laughs> and I thought, like, what if, what, if, what if I died? Like, what if I actually did die? And then, like, a couple of days later, you know, neighbours notice the smell and cops come in and they find me naked on the ground with my pants around my ankles. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got YouTube open on it, and they're like, going, like my eulogy, be like, you know, like I, I'm sure my friends and family would remember me, but like they'd remember the bit at the end a lot more. <laughs> yeah. like, my tombstone be like Michael Chamberlain, left hander, <laughs> Hawthorne supporter, anti Dan Byrne, 
good. And <laughs> <laughs> they sat up. But it'd be like it'd be like they found me pleasuring myself to a YouTube clip of Gordon Ramsay showing you how to cook the perfect roast chicken. And they're like, oh, that guy was into some sick stuff. <laughs> Doing what he loves. Um, <laughs> flowers, please send chickens. <laughs> Sponsor a chicken. Michael would have wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we gotta go. Uh, <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.